This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The lead story today, the UK government has ruled that uh, the UK cannot leave the European Union. There will be no Brexit without a vote in the UK Parliament. That's not good news for the British Prime Minister, not good news for those who supported Brexit. What does this mean for business and for the citizens of the UK? Well, let's get into that. Joining us is Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University in Ottawa. Good morning, Ian. How are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. I'm doing just fine. The uh, the decision from the uh, the Supreme Court, the High Court in, in the UK about this is not really a surprise, is it? Um, it is a surprise in the sense that historically, and when I say historically, I mean going back hundreds of years, the High Court uh, granted very, very wide latitude to the executive, which means the Prime Minister and the Cabinet. However, I think over the past 10, 20, 30 years, what we're seeing, and I'm certainly not a lawyer, but I mean, I can see the decisions coming out and that others do too. And the court in, in the UK has becoming more like a Canadian or an American court. That is to say, they've become more activist and willing to intervene uh, and overturn decisions of government. And so in this instance, Prime Minister May said, look, we, the executive, the cabinet have the decision, make that decision. It's not a decision for Parliament. And a disgruntled citizen of the UK went to court, and the court ruled, "No, I'm sorry, Prime Minister May, you must seek the, uh, you have to get a vote in Parliament." And why that's problematic is, is that as the vote showed with a very narrow split, I think it was 52-48, there's a very large number of members of Parliament who do not support the decision to exit. So there's going to be a brouhaha and a battle royale over the bill that will now need to be introduced in the uh, Parliament at Westminster in order to obtain the requisite approval to proceed to Brexit. But there's going to be a lot of people in the House of Commons who are going to be fighting this who don't even agree with the decision. So it's going to get, it's created more uncertainty is what this decision did today. There's a, an interesting parallel between uh, the, the somewhat controversial U.S. election from last November, too, Ian, because, uh, the, you know, the, the results of the vote that uh, got Donald Trump into the White House, it was, regi- it was regional. It was really where those votes were. And this is very similar to what's gone on with the Brexit vote in the U.K. Uh, it's a regional vote. There are some sections of the U.K. that, quite frankly, were supportive of staying yeah. in the EU. And they're going to yeah. they're going to take advantage of this, I would think. I, I, I completely agree. Uh, I completely agree. And there could be a good old-fashioned crass horse trading. Uh, let's say you're an MP from a certain district and you strongly support uh, 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 staying in uh, the, uh, the, the European Union. But you know that Elizabeth, uh, Prime Minister May is going to have her way, and, and you know your constituents don't agree with her in your riding. So you're, I think, as an MP, going to go to the government, to Prime Minister May's government, and say, now look here, uh, Prime Minister May, we don't agree with you, but if you want us to support this bill, how much money are you going to spend in my constituency for my people? We need some new stimulus in our riding. We need some new offices in our riding. And so I think they're going to be held up to ransom, so to speak. I don't mean personal bribery. I mean where the MP demands that government spending increases in that riding in order for him to support the bill so she to expedite it through the House of Commons. Otherwise, they can drag it out and drag it out for a very long time, creating even more uncertainty. I mean, I'm, I've heard some of the comments from some of the MPs uh, from different parts of, uh, of the U.K. and so far, Ian, after this announcement was made earlier today. And, and they're saying all the right things, like, well, we're not really going to hold the, you know, we're not going to cancel the, the vote. You know, we wouldn't right. dare do that. Uh, but you know that that's in the back of their minds. That's, that's 
possible if, if in fact, yeah. they decide to play hardball with this. I mean, you know, places, yeah. Scotland was talking about a referendum, and now they're going to seize yeah. this. Ireland, of course, uh, voted to stay in the EU, and, and so did most of, of England, for that matter, except for yeah. the major uh, urban area, i.e. London. That's right. Uh, and indeed, I think what these people are doing is not that they're just trying to be difficult. Uh, they're uh, counting on or gambling on or speculating on that they can move public opinion by com- showing all of the people against it, showing all the negative consequences of it. I think what they're trying to do is a gigantic public relations campaign for the hearts and minds of voters in the U.K., and I think what they're trying to do is swing public opinion. I'm not talking another referendum. But let's say some polls come out, which is not far-fetched, in three months or four months, and they show that public opinion now is uh, decisively against exit, and it's up to, let's make up a number, 60% or 65%. And then they go to Prime Minister May and say, do not respect the majority. It's not a referendum, but the polls, I mean, politicians, they live and die by polls. They they. They devour polls. And I can't believe that, that a prime minister or cabinet ministers are going to say, look, we don't give a tinker's uh, damn about, about a poll. If the poll is showing that the people are going in the direction opposite to where the government is about to go. So this is a very fluid situation, is my point. It's not a done deal until that bill passes Parliament and the U.K. government serves notice in writing to the European Union under Article 50 that, yeah, we're out of here. And until that day happens, I would not be betting money on it. I've got some friends over in the U.K. that I talked to just uh, as, as this was foaming up there and, and, you know, as to whether or not the, the court was going to rule in this direction, and they certainly have at this stage. And and the, the consensus I got from them, Ian, was that, look, at if there was an up-down vote in Parliament on this right now, I, I think Brexit's dead. And now, I, I don't know that they'd have the courage to do that at this stage, but you're right. 18 months, 24 yes. months down the road, they yes. might. Yes, I, that's exactly my point. I'm not taking a position of one way or the other. I mean, I'm a, I, I strongly believe in free trade. I've always believed in free trade for all kinds of good reasons. But I'm not, I don't have a dog in this hunt, to use Bill Clinton's famous phrase. Uh, and so I'm just sitting here dispassionately, like you, looking at the what's going on. But I think, because it was such a close vote to start with, this was not a landslide. It was a squeaker. Uh, it was such a squeaker that everybody went to bed thinking that the other side had won, that, the, uh, that those uh, staying in uh, the uh, European mm-hmm. Union had won. And, and so the point that I'm getting at is that this is so fluid, and more and more people are starting to realize it's almost buyer's remorse. And they're saying, gee, we really support exiting the European Union where we sell over half of all our goods and services? And so it's very fluid. And I'm not saying it's going to be is that they are going to go ahead with Brexit. I'm not predicting they're not. I'm just saying that the next, I think, three to six months is going to be very fluid, and it's really quite unpredictable what the final outcome is going to be. How heavy-handed are, are the the political foes of Brexit going to be with this? And 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 let's let's think specifically at this point of Scotland, uh, who had a general election uh, yeah. just last May. I, I was over there in Edinburgh as they were having the election, uh, and and of course the the the. the Referendum hadn't taken place there, but it was certainly front in mind with just about everybody there. The consensus right now is if the UK decides to go through with the exit, with the Brexit, that is, that there will more than likely be another referendum for separation in Scotland. Uh, and, And that seems to be the sword that they're holding over the UK right now. If you go through with this, we're out of here. Because, again, to go back to the speculation, it was a very close vote on the last exit referendum for the Scots. 
probably if there's another okay. one, they're going to vote to leave. I, I agree. This is I, I think that this is probably not the economic argument of this could cause loss of jobs and so forth, because nobody is even sure of that. I mean, everybody said that the world was going to come to an end that was immediately following the referendum, and of course that didn't happen. I'm not sure people are convinced of that. But there, I think there's got to be, people are patriotic, just like in Canada. If one part of Canada said, we almost did it in Quebec in the 1990s, and it was extraordinarily emotional. And, and, and so it, it, when you start talking about the dismemberment and the breakup of the country, it really gets deep into existential territory. And so what I'm arguing is, or suggesting is, the threat of, of, of Scotland leaving because of Brexit is enough to get, I think, uh, people to, uh, a number, a considerable number of people to change their minds. And let's not forget that, and I know this because my late father was a Brit. I have a British passport because of that. And I've been to England many, many times, and Wales and Scotland and so forth. You know, some of these places like uh, Wales have never been. Uh, are completely on board of being part of the UK. And if Scotland goes, you know, there is a small independence movement in Wales, and you could see the, the, uh, the pizza slice dismemberment of the UK. And I've got to believe that that will weigh increasingly on the minds of voters, and for that matter, people in the government of, of Prime Minister May. And to the point where you say, look, I wasn't elected to break up the country and chop it into little pieces. And you could use that as a moral argument to trump the referendum vote, I think. You have uh, told us and reminded us, uh, and rightly so, uh, that world markets don't like uncertainty. What's this going to do to world markets? I mean, this seemed to be, and I I know there was shock the day after the referendum last year, Ian, but people seem to think, well, okay, maybe they can manage this. Now this is all up in the air again. What's this going to do to world currencies, to world trading markets? Because it's going to have an impact on, on so many other countries besides the ones that are just immediately affected here. Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, I, I think that the least impact will be on Trump uh, on the United States because of Trump. That is to say, all of his policies are so different and they're going to have such a major impact. That's going to uh, overwhelm any uh, Brexit impact in the U.S. Uh, or, or if it creates even more uncertainty at, at, the, at the, uh, the worst case, it'll just simply push the U.S. dollar up even more uh, vis-a-vis the uh, euro. I, uh, the, clearly, the, the greatest damage is going to be on the U.K. and on the European Union, uh, because, of course, they're, um, they're the ones that are doing the trading, and it's really about their future. It's going to have a knock-on effect on currency markets. You're absolutely right, because every, as I like to remind my students, every currency is always priced off of another currency. You can't talk about a, the EU or the euro without talking about the euro in relation to what? the euro in relation to the U.S. dollar, sure. in relation to the Canadian dollar. So if one currency is going up, someone else is going down, because it's a binary relationship. It's like a light switch. The light is on or the light is off. And so if the, the U.K. pound is down and the euro is down, well, then somebody else's currency, that means someone else's currency is up. And that means that the, UK, the uh, U.S. dollar is probably going up. And because we're so closely pegged to the U.S. dollar, in Canada, if the U.S. dollar goes up, de facto, the loony is going up vis-a-vis the U.K. Uh, uh, pound and the uh, euro. So, uh, I, But I do think that it's going to fall disproportionately. The impact of the uncertainty is going to fall disproportionately on uh, the United Kingdom and on Europe, which, of course, has had very anemic growth 
over the last few years to start with. And they, of course, got the problems of Greece and Italy and so forth. So I think that the problems are going to fall most heavily on, on, on Europe. And Spain and France. I mean, Germany's about the only strong economy in that group right now, aren't they? You are absolutely correct. Germany is just doing gangbusters. But Southern Europe is just, they're in the doldrums, and it's not just Greece. You know, it's uh, Portugal, it's, it's, it's Italy, which is the third largest economy in the European Union. Um, uh, France is doing very poorly. So, you know, it's, uh, it, this is just, this is something that they do not need uh, in Europe. Uh, because, it, as I said, it's creating yet more uncertainty on top of all the other problems that they've got over there. Two weeks ago, there was some discussion about a Canada-U.K. trade deal because they thought, well, we're leaving, you know, yes. Brexit is on. Uh, does that get pushed to the back burner now until they find out what's going to happen here? I think it did, but I think it's, uh, I, I actually, I'll go right on the limb, and I don't think it's that <laughs> provocative what I'm going to say. Uh, I think that a, uh, and I've long thought that if uh, UK does exit, that they will strike a deal very quickly with both Canada and the United States, because there is a great deal of affinity and respect and, and a lot of ties, commercial ties, personal ties, family ties. We all speak the same language. It's English common law countries, you know, they're parliamentary or, or congressional uh, democracies, rule of law. The similarities are astounding. Conrad Black wrote a column, a very interesting column, arguing, and this has been mooted before, kicked about before in years gone by, about creating a union of the, and he called it the Anglosphere. And what he meant was the English-speaking countries. And he meant specifically U.S., Canada, U.K., Australia, New Zealand. And of course, the, they were the major countries that fought in the Second World War against the, uh, the Nazis. And he's argued that we have all kinds of things in common, beyond the obvious structural things. You know, we have very similar political systems and, and so forth. And he argued that there's, why not do a free trade agreement between those countries? And, and I would not be surprised at all, because Donald Trump is very conservative in that, uh, well, in many respects, but he's certainly conservative in this respect. I think he's got, uh, uh, you know, strong feel, good feelings, strong feelings towards the UK, and I think that they would be very uh, open to a trade agreement. They're not going to give away the store in the states, but they would be open to a trade agreement very similar to whatever trade agreement they negotiate between Canada and the states. If we do renegotiate NAFTA, as I fully expect we will, and I could see them doing a very similar deal with the UK, and likewise Canada will, because Trudeau wants to show leadership. He wants to show that he's doing something about this, the, all these changes. And one way would to say, hey, look, we're going to do a free trade agreement with uh, the United Kingdom. Who can be opposed to that? It's the, uh, the old mother country. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. A uh, great deal of concern on this side of the border about uh, President Trump's comments about renegotiating NAFTA. What's that going to mean? Is it going to have an impact on the auto industry? What about softwood lumber? And on and on it goes. Well, John Iverson writes about that in the, in the National Post today. Uh, Trump has unusually positive view of Canada, and things should go well, according to a top advisor. John Iverson from the National Post joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about that. Hey, John, how you doing? Hi, Bill. How are you? Fabulous. I, I'm feeling a little more reassured after reading your piece today. Uh, I don't think we're into one of those Sally Field moments where, hey, they love us, they really love us, but <laughs> it, 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 it may not be as bad as a lot of people are thinking. Uh, well, you know, I mean, it remains to be seen. I mean, they, but... I guess all we can take out of it thus far is the fact that uh, it doesn't look like we'll be targeted. Um, you know, the, I guess the the danger always is that we get sideswiped and there's, there's unintended collateral damage. Um, you know, clearly if the 
U.S. starts a trade war with China, then we're going to get we're going to be affected by it. But uh, but it doesn't sound like they're going to go out of their way to hit Canadian exports, for example, with the border tax. I mean, that, that was a, the big worry that this this tax would be up to twenty percent on everything that went south of the border. That would have been a calamity for Canada. It looks like we've dodged that bullet. How so? I mean, has has there been some work going on behind the scenes here? Well, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, um, funnily enough, Brian Mulroney, the former prime minister, was uh, appears to have been instrumental in this. He was, I think when the, when the Trump administration got elected, the, the liberals were really caught off guard. I mean, they had pretty much put all their eggs in the, the Hillary Clinton basket. They were particularly well connected with the Democrats, but not with the Republicans. And uh, so when the unthinkable happened, um, you know, they put on this kind of political bat signal and, and, and Brian Mulroney <laughs> answered the call because he knows all of these guys on the Trump side. Well, Mulroney and Trump are neighbors down on West Palm, aren't they? That's right. And um, But even closer than Trump, I mean, but he, I mean, he's known Trump for 20, 30 years. Um, even closer to him is Wilbur Ross, who is the new trade, the Commerce Secretary. Um, I gathered that about a month ago, Ross's birthday, and there were about 50 people invited to his house by his wife, and Mulroney was one of those and gave a speech. So that, that's how close he is there. He also sits on the board of Blackstone, the oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, private equity firm, which is chaired by uh, Steve Schwartzman, who was, who was the guy who was in Calgary yesterday addressing the cabinet and telling them that uh, we quite like you, uh, you being Canada, um, and that things should go well for you. So Mulroney's pointed out to all these people the fact that, I mean, basic facts that I don't think that they were aware of. I understand Ross, for example, was not aware that 35 states had Canada as their, their largest single export market, or that 9 million jobs in the U.S. were dependent on uh, trade with Canada. You know, basic things like that suddenly make American policymakers think twice before penalizing Canada. If you're going to penalize Canada, you're going to be you're going to have to answer to 70 senators in those 35 states plus the governors, all of whom are going to make your life a misery. So I think this message was communicated and I think it's registered and apart from anything else, I think the, the Trump guys they know they're going to be fighting battles all over the world. They don't want to be fighting one in their backyard. So hence the uh, the, uh, the the chair of this strategic advisory board uh, Schwarzman was sent north yesterday. He's reassured the Canadian government and Canadians to the extent that he can. What he can't do, though, is he can't promise that nothing's going to change. I mean, he said NAFTA is going to have to be modernized, uh, which is not in itself a bad thing for for an, for an agreement that's, that's as old as it is. You know, I mean, if you're a high-tech person trying to work in the U.S., uh, you know, the labor mobility exchange is not there because high-tech jobs weren't conceived at the time. So mm-hmm. that there are things that could be updated that would not penalize Canada. But I think inevitably there will be things that we are forced to swallow that we don't particularly want to. And just to finish that thought, I think the one area that that the Trump government is going to assist the Canadian government acts, but it doesn't particularly want to, is on defense spending. Um, They've been very clear that they don't think NATO allies are, are paying enough of their own way. And I think the request has already been made. We want to see you do something here. That's that's interesting. I, I was glad you brought that up in the piece today in the Post, John, because that, that's I know that was something that Trump talked about during the campaign, but it seems to have kind of fallen off the radar for an awful lot of people, and and clearly it hasn't for him. 
Uh, and it's interesting that, uh, that that would be part of these negotiations. In other words, we may give you a bit of a pass on some of these trade issues, but you're going to have to step up here. I think so. I think that that's already been communicated. Uh, the uh, Gerald Butts, who's the principal secretary to the prime minister, met with Steve Bannon, who is uh, chief strategist for Trump. Uh, Bannon is a former U.S. Navy guy, and uh, he knows the Canadian military. I think uh, all the countries in NATO had signed on to this agreement that they would, they would uh, by 2024, they would spend 2% of GDP on defense. Nobody expects Canada to get there. I mean, that, that would double the budget. It would, it would cost Canada another $21 billion in defense spending. So basically, it's not happening. Um, but all the countries also signed up for to spend 20% of their defense budget on equipment, on capital spending, infrastructure, etc. And I think Canada could get there. Uh, we're at 13% right now. An extra billion and a half would take us to, to somewhere around 20, 20%. I think Bannon and the Trump administration appreciates that when push comes to shove and the nasty work has to be done, that Canada is there, that it's a reliable ally, and that the the metric for reliability should not just be the percentage of GDP spent on on uh, defence. So I think uh, the Trudeau government can turn around and say, look, we punch above our weight, we, we do spend a lot on equipment, we're not going to spend an extra $21 billion, but how about we do something else? And I think, you know, various people have put forward suggestions for something else. It could be that we're going to secure continental security around uh, North America. Uh, apparently the um, the radar, land radar stations are pretty obsolete now. They, the stealth technology means that they're not particularly effective, and there have been a lot of calls for, for that to be upgraded using space technology. I think if Canada was to, to step up and say something like, we will protect your northern flank more thoroughly, then the Trump guys would turn around and go, well, look, well, Canada's doing its part. What are you guys doing? This goes back to the, the speculation, John. A lot of people had uh, right after the election on November the 8th that uh, obviously about the difference between campaigning and governing, uh, that uh, that Trump is going to have to listen to people like Schwartzman. And they're going to say, look, I know this is what you said you were going to do, but here's the reality. It's not necessarily softening the stand. It's, it's maybe, maybe taking a more pragmatic approach to the idea. Right, right. I mean, I think um, we saw that with the Mexican wall, that suddenly sure. it became an impossibility to do what he'd campaigned on. So, you know, I mean, I think we're going to see that all, all over uh, his... I mean, it was a pretty uh, unspecific uh, part, uh, policy platform in any case. So it gave him a lot of wiggle room. But uh, but I think as regards Canada, there was nothing much said um, beyond the Keystone pipeline, which, I mean, that was one of the few specifics that he did give. And it looks like Canada will benefit from that. Um, NAFTA will be renegotiated, but it, um, you know it, we may escape the worst of our fears as far as what it will uh, will mean for for access for Canadian goods. I, I don't know if we can get into crunching numbers at this stage, John. But if you look at, I should say, the fact that we may get a bit of a break on some of these trade uh, possibilities and some of the tariffs that were being talked about anyway. And then you look at maybe Canada's recommitment or increased commitment on the on the military on the defense side. Is that a saw off for the Trudeau government? Can they can they sell that to their to their their followers and to their to the to the party and to the cabinet to say, look at I know we're losing here, but we're gaining here, and it's 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 all for the benefit of the country. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, frankly, I, I think we can. I mean, there may be some on the the left fringe that uh, uh, get upset at extra military spending. Yeah, but you're never going to placate them, are you? No, no. Um, I think that uh, the big aim for the Trudeau government was to avoid this border adjustment tax, which 
which really could have been a, a game changer. Um, and to make sure that we weren't being targeted with buy American policies, so that if there are, you know, the, the Trump government has talked about massive infrastructure spending, Canadian companies want to bid on that work. And if they were excluded by buy American, you know, everything had to be to come from from the U.S., then we would have uh, that would have penalised us too. So I, I think avoiding those two two bullets, uh, then they can make concessions elsewhere, but still go out and say, look, we we played a good game here. There's an interesting dynamic here with the Mulroney factor that, uh, uh, that I know you've written about in the past, uh, since Trump obviously has come into prominence and was the president-elect at that time. Uh, he and Trump, as you say, have a relationship. They they you know, they both live down in West Palm Beach, but also, of course, Mulroney's relationship with Stephen Schwartzman. Uh, but on the other side of that coin, Mulroney has a pretty good relationship with Justin Trudeau. Uh, yeah. which works well. This is not just a, hey, I'm a conservative, he's a liberal, so we're, we are enemies. Uh, and it's it's an interesting juxtaposition because uh, Mulroney and Pierre Trudeau did not get along for a whole lot of reasons, yet he seems to have a soft spot for Justin. Yes, he does. Um, you know, I interviewed him quite recently. Uh, we talked about Justin, and uh, if you remember, three years ago, he, he raised the, the prospect that, that Trudeau should not be underestimated, uh, which did not earn him uh, brownie points with with the then Prime Minister Stephen Harper, um, you know, he to, a, to an extent he legitimised Trudeau at a time when Trudeau was being ridiculed and, and denigrated by many Conservatives. So and a few yeah, Liberals uh, too. Sorry, and, and a few Liberals too. Now, you know, it should be noted that uh, at the time Mulroney was trying to raise money for his uh, uh, at uh, St Francis Xavier in Antigonition, Nova Scotia, he was trying to raise money for a new Brian Mulroney uh, political studies wing of the university. Um, and it looks like the federal government, the new federal government, will support him in a way that the Harper government did not. So it may not have been a completely altruistic on, on Mulroney's part, but um, you're right. I mean, he, he did not particularly hold the elder Trudeau in high regard. He uh, he he was leader of the opposition when Trudeau was prime minister, and um, to this day he still has a jaundiced view of, of how Trudeau viewed the U.S., many other issues. Uh, he doesn't believe that um, the younger Trudeau has the same views about the U.S. In fact, he he went to, if you remember the the uh, comments that Trudeau made about Castro, uh, which went down particularly badly, I'm told, with with Trump, who happened to be in Florida at the time. You can imagine being in Florida at the time when uh, when the Canadian Prime Minister's uh, singing the praises of, of Fidel Castro. Mm-hmm. Um, it was Mulroney who went to Castro and uh, to uh, Trump and said, "Look, he's merely reflecting the views of his father. These are not—he's not knee-jerk uh, anti-U.S. And uh, this is a, the legacy of uh, Trudeau, the father, being close to Castro. It's not a—it should nothing too much should be read into it. I think in that way, it was uh, Mulroney has been pretty crucial, all relatively good turn of fortune for Canada." Well, let's talk about relationship, and I know this is evolving. I mean, it's only been a few days now that uh, Trump has been in the White House. Uh, I, I don't foresee, and I don't think anybody foresees, a relationship between Trudeau and and Trump like there was between Trudeau and Obama. There, there was a, a, a chemistry there between the two of them. Uh, that may never happen, but uh, or or a Reagan Mulroney thing. I mean, 
But at the same time, uh, it's, I'm getting the sense that these guys can probably at some point develop a working relationship between them, given the, the, the accommodations that both of them have made in such a short period of time. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, well, Trump likes people who are good-looking, rich, and famous. So, you know, <laughs> take all those boxes, and and that's, you know, I'm being facetious, but I'm not really. I mean, there's an element of truth to that. Um, I also think that, you know, they can. They can probably do business. They both came in on this ticket of, uh, uh, we're going to help the middle class. I think they're, they're, both sides are making a lot of that. You know, there is some common ground here. Um, well, even on think, uh, even something as controversial as Keystone. I mean, you know, Trudeau's on side with that project. Yeah, and, no, for sure he is. And, and, you know, I think they're, they're, they're making too much of the idea that they have common ground because they don't really have much common ground. But um, if Trudeau plays this right, it could play well for Canada. I mean, I, I was in New York at the, uh, the UN, and already the Chinese, for example, were, were coming to Trudeau and seeing him as somebody who might be able to have... Sp- influence with um, with the Americans. Uh, this is before the election, but I guess, you know, the, the Chinese were, were aware that they could end up in a Trump presidency. So I think, you know, Trudeau is, is aware that he, that he can play this role of uh, interlocutor with, uh, with governments all around the world as an ambassador, not an ambassador, but maybe an emiss- emissary to, uh, to uh, Donald Trump. This has got to be, I would think, good news for Mulroney, too. I mean, you know, we were, we talk early, and, and invariably, whenever you have a conversation about Donald Trump, the the, the narcissistic attitude tends to t- seep into the conversation. And, and I suppose anybody in public office, especially at that level, has a certain degree of that. Yeah, but, even, and, our, even our prime minister, I was Well, yes. sure, sure, and as as did, you know, uh, Stephen Harper, as did Jean Chrétien, and, and, and Brian Mulroney, certainly, as well. But Mulroney, John, as, as you and I have talked about in the past, always wanted to be, I think, thought of as a senior statesman now, not just as an ex-prime minister. And, and he really got a chance to flex his muscle in that regard through this. this and I know this is not over yet, but he's got to be feeling pretty good about his contribution and what he's done here. Oh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, um, you know, let's be frank. He was, uh, he was in bad odor following the, uh, the Oliphant inquiry into the, into the brown envelopes. Um, he had to rehabilitate his reputation, and I think he, he's he's done that in large measure through this uh, um, fundraising for uh, at St. Francis Xavier and uh, Antigonish. I mean, that was all part of the idea of, of rehabilitating the image of Brian Mulroney, and I think this goes further still. I mean, I think he's done Canada a great service here at a time when nobody else could have done what he's done. And, and it wasn't happening for him previously. I mean, certainly not with the Crutchin administration or the Martin administration. Oh, uh, the Harper administration. And the Harper I mean, administration may be worse than the past two liberal administrations maybe, when it came to the way they treated the him. He was, he was uh, totally persona non grata there, and, uh, um, you know, the two men just did not get along. So he's, he may be looking at this as, this is the opportunity for me to attain that, that senior statesman status that I've always wanted right now. Is, is, is there a role for him going forward with this Trudeau government to continue to do this sort of thing, to be that liaison between these two, two governments? I'm not sure about that. Um, certainly when I talked to him, he did, that, that, that didn't come up. I mean, it was clear that he had, had uh, created a bridge between the two, the two governments. I guess it will now be up to them to to move forward with that. Whether they still uh, rely on Mulroney, it's not clear to me. I think it's still too early to say. But but it's clear that he does have the ear of these people, and that won't change. So, you know, if I were them, I would keep him sweet. 
are, are we out of the woods now when it comes to the the trade negotiations? I mean, notwithstanding the fact that it looks like uh, there's going to be, a, as you say, an increased asking for for defense spending on this, and I, I'm assuming that Canada is going to be amenable to that sort of thing. Uh, does does that does that pave the way now for a smoother negotiation with some of these other trade aspects? Well, I, I don't think we could say we're out of the woods. I mean, the, the NAFTA the discussions have not started. I mean, that's I think on both things, both on defense and on renegotiating NAFTA. Uh, we haven't even got to the table yet, so you know it's uh, it, it's early days. I think all we can say is that there's an uh, there's an element of goodwill from the Americans, which will certainly not be there with the with the Mexicans. Um, you know, part of the reason part of the reason that they are more amenable to Canada is because they claim the Mexicans and the Chinese have been trading unfairly. You know, they have massive trade deficits with both countries. Uh, on, with Canada, it's a very balanced relationship. You know, we we send them as much as they send us. Um, so there is a feeling that there's no need to uh, impose additional tariffs. It basically comes down to that. So I guess that it's unlikely we're going to get massive punitive tariffs imposed or, or, or even non-tariff barriers in a way that I think the, the Mexicans and the Chinese certainly will see. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The president has been busy on Twitter again, and busy in the Oval Office signing at least three executive orders. I know, I know, I know, I know. This is the same guy that criticized Barack Obama for using executive orders, and he's done three of them in 48 hours. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Laura Babcock, president of Power Grip. Laura, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks, Bill. All right, Flashpoint. Here's, let's, let's play with word association here. All right, alternative facts. <laughs> <laughs> the lie of the century. The, uh, well, is it? <laughs> of course. There's no such thing as alternative facts. And and when Kellyanne Conway tried to throw that out there on Meet the Press this Sunday, she laughed at it. She knew it was so ridiculous. And Merriam-Webster Dictionary trolled her on Twitter to explain to her that facts are facts. So, yeah, alternative facts is a lie. But this is the mantra of, of the Trump campaign, now slash Trump administration, uh, I, I, I suppose, you know, if you keep doing it and you get away with it, you eventually think, that well, you know, I don't know if they're believing it or they just think, well, people are gullible enough that they're going to say believe whatever we say. Well, let me say two things. The New York Times, I give credit, actually used the word lie in the front page story to, this morning. And their stories could have been about all of those business-related things that Trump was doing yesterday. He actually had a good day of doing what he does best. And then, of course, he blew it by telling a whopper of a lie to the congressional leadership at a dinner last night. And so the, the New York Times called him out for a lie on that. And I have to say also, there's a great piece by Andrew Coyne, just really looking at the mm-hmm. idea of alternative facts. And what are they trying to do? Are they, is, is Trump so just so narcissistic and delusional that they just keep trying to cover for him? Or, in fact, are they trying to make us all question our reality? Because if we question our reality, then we have a much harder time opposing things that they're doing because nothing seems true. There's no benchmark anymore. There's nothing we can believe in. And, and that's a very dangerous path that they may be taking us on. So there's either the view that there's some serious delusion going on and lying, or there's a view that there's a, a very sinister plot to uh, change the way that we think. And so either of those things are not good, Bill. It was not a good weekend. 
Let me ask you something. In your years as a media analyst on both sides of the border, Laura, how did we get from, I, the question that's in my mind, from the Watergate days, from Woodward and Bernstein to when the, the media and the press were lauded as, thank you, you are the vanguards of, of truth. Uh, you know, when, uh, with the crooked Nixon administration, you exposed this. You, you know, uncovered this massive uh, undertaking and, and cover-up, of course, that went on. And, and, and journalists were, were heroes then. Now look well, where where the the, the 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 whole journalistic the whole idea right now is. Uh, it seems to me as if right now that the president of the United States can select. You're good. No, you're no. You're fake. You're good. You're fake. Well, two things. One, just let me say the irony on Woodward and Bernstein. It was actually Bernstein who was part of that CNN reporting on that document going to the presidential briefing, and it was Woodward who went on another network and said that the reporting wasn't fantastic or that that situation didn't go down well. So they're still engaged, albeit sometimes on on other sides of things. Why did it get this way? Because the media deserves it. They were lazy. They got ratings driven. It became 24-hour cable tabloid TV. It became biased. We started to have competing editorial networks like MSNBC versus Fox News. And, and you know, we did, our, we did this to ourselves. The credibility got lost. And we started to see a lot of it being more profit motive driven. And we saw newsrooms get gutted. And, and there was no more money in it for investigative journalism. And one good thing that's come out of this, Bill, is that we've seen now that the Washington Post under Jeff Bezos, who I think the world owes a thank you to because he gave them the resources to pursue some of these major stories on Trump the last year, but we've got uh, the Washington Post is hiring a bunch more investigative journalists. And there's a new journal that just got launched to to watch Trump's policies. And there's there's some... We, uh, raison d'etre, a reason for being, has been reestablished for the media, and I think we're going to see subscriptions go up, and maybe they'll get back to those lauded days of being the bastions of truth again. Whichever side of the political spectrum you're on, because right now it just seems as if everybody's being painted with the same brush. And I, I, I don't disagree with your point. Uh, I, I found it very frustrating to watch uh, the, the way that this devolved over the last little while, where essentially networks and, and, and news organizations uh, we're simply, re, you know, reprocessing whatever was given to them by the politicians and simply saying that's news. And, yeah, uh, you know, I, I forget which one. Uh, I, who was it, Laura? The famous quote that says, if you ask a tough question, that's journalism. If you simply reprint what they're saying, that's public relations. And, and there was way too much public relations in broadcasting then. Absolutely. And, there was, and I run a PR firm, and I would agree with that wholeheartedly. It's, I call it news by press release. They don't even call you for a follow-up. <laughs> they just print as, as you've written it, which is why so many journalists get into PR, because we know how to write their stories for them. But that being said, uh, there's also that expression that's attributed to Hitler's PR guy that talked about, you know, if you tell a lie often enough and it's big enough, people will believe it. And I think I think we should be wise to how propaganda works. And I think it's been a very, I'm not saying that all PR is propaganda. I I run ethical public relations, but certainly some PR is propaganda. And when you run propaganda and there is no pushback to it, then you walk into very dangerous territory. And so I feel as though the media hit rock bottom in the on the day after the election. They all said, wow, were we so wrong. We were even buying into polls without going and checking against the stats of the polls. We were lazy. We were in our bubbles. And we got what we deserve. And so now I see them retooling, refocusing. 
when Sean Spicer, the, the press secretary, came out and bold-faced lied to the media Saturday night, I was pretty angry, Bill, because I thought... Oh, I know. I saw your posts on that. Oh, I was, I, was, I was livid. And so was my husband, who also works in the media. We were both like, this cannot stand. How can this possibly be, be okay anymore? And so I was really happy to see that, you know, the major shows the next morning and, uh, you know, for the next 24 hours, there was an uprising against that. And we saw Sean Spicer try to do a little bit of a reboot on Monday, which was much better. Well, and I made the point yesterday. I mean, I really don't give a damn how many people were there for the inauguration. It's not the number. It's the credibility of the administration that, that's at stake here. Whether, you know, it was a million or 500,000 or whatever. I mean, I saw the pictures, and uh, they are what they are. I get that. Uh, Eric Sorensen did a piece on Global TV last night about that and, and, and added some clarification, by the way, because I know that some of the, the right-wingers are saying, well, they were taken at different times of the day, different angles. No, they were taken at the same time of day. Uh, you know, a number of years apart, and, so, and there is a huge difference. But that's not even the issue. I really don't care if not that many people showed up for Trump's as they did for Obama's. It's that the administration simply, it's, it's, the, it's like the emperor has no clothes. They simply, they, they refuse to uh, admit the obvious, and they could gain so much more credibility if they would do that, but they don't seem to care. And that's, that's what's so troubling about it. Uh, I hope that Trump brings jobs, good jobs. I hope that NAFTA is renegotiated fairly for Canada. You know, I, I, I like that globalization is being challenged on its merits as a sort of a, a review of whether it's a good principle. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with all that stuff. But it's when he obsesses for 24 hours, and there's been stories in the Washington Post and elsewhere about the fighting and the obsession over his numbers, how the networks were putting these numbers out, the numbers of the Women's March, vis-a-vis his numbers, so much so that Sean Spicer goes out and puts his whole reputation on the line, and apparently his retort from Trump was he wasn't tough enough and he wore the wrong suit. You know, and so Sean Spicer throws himself under the bus, which is his to live with, and, and then we see last night, after a full successful day, Donald Trump promotes another lie about, you know, the size of his victory, that he would have had the popular vote too if only there weren't three to five million illegal votes, which everybody knows is absolutely delusional and a lie. So the trouble here is that it's not that everybody wants Trump to fail. It's that you cannot have a president's temperament constantly suck energy, throw them off their game, create all these kinds of battles. I mean, it's just such an unprofessional way to run the business of running the world. I made the uh, the comment uh, during the inauguration on my commentary that day that uh, I, I, I agree with you. I don't want to see Trump fail, too. And I took some heat for that from some people that, that have a real problem. I have a, a real problem with Donald Trump for a whole lot of reasons. But, but but if he fails, then America fails, and then we fail in, in this country, and a lot of things fall. It's a domino effect. I, my hope was that Trump the narcissist becomes Trump the pragmatist, and I don't see any evidence that that's going to happen. Well, I, I feel like we're watching this vicious vacillation between the two instincts, right? They, they were even calling him this morning on Morning Joe, good Trump or bad Trump. Now we've got a Jekyll or Hyde situation. Which Trump will show up today? You know, and so the fact that yesterday he did some good meetings, took some governance kind of actions, and only told one big crazy whopper lie was a, scene of, a sign of success. I mean, this is the standard that we're at now. And so, yes, I think that his his instincts to believe his own reality uh, should be deeply disturbing to the entire planet. And I think that it is. That's why we saw the biggest march in global history and the biggest march in U.S. history on Saturday, because people know that there's something not right going on there. When Trump does what he's good at, which is selling the U.S. and selling product and selling his strategies and getting business to, to, you know, 
get back into the U.S., that's great. Be the business guy. I think a lot of people voted for him because they said he will change, hopefully, with all this other nonsense. But let's just let somebody who's successful make us successful. I don't begrudge Trump voters for, for buying that value proposition. I never have. But there is a deep concern about which instinct he chooses to follow. And we've seen too much back and forth in the last three days to have any real sense of confidence. There, there was one shred of evidence, though, over the weekend, Laura, that suggested that there's somebody that has his ear at some point uh, when he immediately tweeted about the women's marches and said they were irrelevant and what's the big deal and, and again, uh, understated the numbers and, and then came back with a much more gracious tweet, you know, that democ- you know, that, you know, protest is, is one of the hallmarks of democracy, blah, blah, blah. I don't even know if he wrote it, but, I mean, it was released under his tweet. So, so somebody obviously said, Mr. President, this is it. I don't know who it is. But there seem to be some moments when, when actually you can get to him. And I, I saw an interesting tweet from somebody who uh, was identified as somebody who worked with him in the business world for years that says you can't correct Trump in front of anybody else because he just blows up. You can do it when it's just you and he there and, and say, look, I think that was the wrong thing. And you see, he might listen. So, but, but again, that goes to ego. If I had to guess, I would say that Kellyanne Conway has always been that person, that person who knows how to, she's the Trump whisperer because that sounds like her kind of language. I mean, when she took that deep dive into nonsense on Sunday morning and humiliated herself with the alternative facts rationale, that was her off her game. But generally speaking, she does the cleanup job for Trump. She understands that he's gone too far. And I think that Ivanka also would want him to reposition the women's thing better because, I mean, her entire brand and her reputation is tied to promoting women's issues with her father. So I think you're seeing Kellyanne Conway and Ivanka's fingerprints on that kind of thing. But they've even said, you know, tweets on his POTUS uh, Twitter handle now, he'll sign his name on the end when they're his. And There's a distinct difference between Kellyanne or someone else doing cleanup diplomatic language for him and what he's doing authentically. Hey, I kind of think it's cool to see an authentic thought of a president by the hour. I think it's terrific in terms of understanding what's going on with the U.S. agenda. Uh, but there is something not right with somebody who lets their, their narcissistic tendencies totally sabotage their success. Uh, everyone has a little bit of narcissism. I know I certainly do, but hopefully it doesn't dictate. I don't spend three days reacting to a tweet, and, and that's a real problem with the leader of the world. I got one other point I mentioned. I knew you were going to come on the program sometime this week, and as, as I was watching the inauguration last Friday, what did you think of the speech? I, I have my own thoughts about it, but I'd, I'd like to get your read on it. I thought that it was a poor speech. I mean, take take partisanship or politics out of it. It was delivered in a staccato delivery. It had no higher ideals. It had no references to history. It didn't respect the moment that it was in. So just from the point of view of the structure, the delivery, the, 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 the bedrock of the speech and the elements it incorporated, it was, it was a cheap, cheesy, poorly written speech. It didn't seem like it had a wide collaborative input into it, which you would expect in a speech at that level. Uh, and so that was, I mean, the speech itself was poorly done. The delivery of it was angry. When you end a speech with a raised fist, it's not an image that you want to send to the world about America. It's not the right, you know, the, the bright light city on the hill anymore. It becomes something rather daunting and scary. Uh, and the, the content of the speech was dystopian. And, and, you know, it reminded me of that convention speech, which gave me nightmares that night. I don't mind if Trump wants to protect American jobs, but when he calls for a day of devotion or forced patriotism in some ways, or, you know, this, this idea of it's us against the world and you better watch out, I mean, that's, that's pretty serious for the world superpower to make that their big moment with the world. And that, and that was deeply concerning. Yeah, I thought, I thought it was dark. 
and oh. and and you know inauguration day is not the day for dark i mean even uh, to go back in history, I mean, FDR during his inauguration. I mean, we're talking about World War II for God's sakes. Yet, he, yet he presented hope. Uh, Kennedy presented hope. Reagan presented hope, and on and on it goes. And and Trump, it reminded me. You're right of the convention speech of his uh, his comments during the Al Smith dinner, which I thought were totally out of place, and 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 very very dark. And 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 I saw the same thing here. Uh, and and I, I kept thinking as I was watching this. When are you going to start acting presidential? And that may not mean a whole lot to some of his supporters, but it should to him. I think presidential for us means the most, not just the individual, but the team around them, the most skilled, the most focused, the most serious, the most inspirational. You know, you, if you're going to have the mantle of leader of the world, uh, which I think is quickly diminishing based on what's going on in the U.S. in the last few years, but that being said, um, then we would expect the very best and brightest to be around, the very best minds, the very best speech writers. I mean, this is supposed to be the top of the game. And when you perform in a substandard, subpar way, it does so much more than just anger people because they didn't like what he said in his speech or rive up his base because they did. It sends a message to the world that it's amateur hour at the White House, and, and that gives advantage. I mean, Trump is the guy who hates giving advantage and here he is giving advantage with his with his antics it, it's really quite to use his favorite hashtag sad somebody's got to tell him the election's over and, and i mean when the votes are counted and he's already been sworn in as the president of the united states of america he doesn't need to campaign now he starts he has to start being a president i don't think it's over for him because he didn't win the popular vote i think he will constantly feel inferior and we saw that in sean spicer's weird five-minute rant yesterday about how, why can't we just give them some love? Why does everything have to be negative? Why can't we make Donald Trump feel good about himself? I mean, it was just the weirdest, most whiny, plaintive speech from a White House press secretary I've ever seen. You know, you don't get good coverage in the U.S. in the Oval Office if you don't do things that the press thinks are good things. So, I mean, that's just the ball game. And for them to say, you know, why don't you guys love us? It was just like, are you, are you serious? <laughs> you know, he's lucky to meet even showed up on Monday after the stunt they pulled on Saturday night. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.